1: with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great week so far. I have two full days left in town before I go out of town again, this time for two weeks. I'm going up to Seattle to stay uh, just on uh, right outside Seattle on a lake called Lake Chelan for about a week uh, with my wife, and then we are catching a cruise out of Seattle to go up to Alaska two places I've never been to before and I'm very, very excited to see. Uh, That said, I am a big person and I am paranoid about the cruise ship a little bit because I've heard they can be very claustrophobic and confined my wife has been doing her best to try to calm me down I'm sure it will be okay but I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna come prepared with some dramamine and and just try to stay out of the room as much as possible in the open air uh, that said I've taken all my stuff with me so I, I plan on doing some shows while I'm out uh, we did have some NBA news yesterday that was very fascinating a report that the Utah Jazz are going to be listening to trade offers for Donovan Mitchell. I actually do expect them to trade him. So we're going to get into that a little bit today. Uh, We had two very interesting reports from Kyrie, one from Dave McMenamin at ESPN, um, and then another one out out of the New York Post, heavily implying that the Nets are considering uh, retaining Kyrie and KD. We're going to get into that a little bit. There was a very interesting quote from Adam Silver talking about Kevin Durant's trade request that I thought was kind of indicative of of where the league is going in terms of their collective bargaining agreement negotiations that will be coming up on the horizon. And just in general, a, a, a very important debate about the balance between what's best for the league and what's fair for the players that I want to get into. And then at the very end, I'm going to briefly touch, we had... Uh, Uh, Mr. Bobby Marks from ESPN, former GM of um, the Brooklyn Nets, who said that he thought Steph Curry was number two all time behind uh, Michael Jordan. Very, very spicy. I'm going to give my two cents on that as well. Um, And then at the very, very end, I plan on touching a little bit on interaction that I had with uh, Kevin Durant on Monday. Uh, Before we get started, if you guys could subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our content. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. So you guys don't miss show announcements or any of the video content that I produce. As you guys know, we have some limitations on the video content that we're allowed to use on YouTube, but on Twitter, I kind of get free reign. So that's the place you want to go for that kind of stuff. And then last but not least, if you miss one of these shows for whatever reason and you want to catch up but you can't get over to YouTube, we do release them in podcast form under Lakers tonight. We are currently in the process of changing that to Hoops tonight as well. That should happen here in the next couple of weeks. All right, let's get started. So first of all, I thought that, that Donovan Mitchell would be the first one to get traded in this Utah Jazz situation. As we're about to get into in just a minute, I think he's a textbook number two. I don't think he's a guy that you can have as the best player on your championship team. And then I also thought he had the most trade value. And so I was like, what a great way to reset just by you know shipping Donovan Mitchell off somewhere, getting back a ton of assets, and then you can rebuild around Rudy Gobert. The reason why I said that was I didn't think Rudy Gobert had any trade value. And I, I was unbelievably wrong about that <laughs> because... The Minnesota Timberwolves paid a ridiculous price to get Rudy Gobert. My thought process was he's so limited offensively, even with the great things that he brings defensively, that you can't have a $47 million hit on your cap sheet in the year 2026 for a player that doesn't help you on the offensive end of the floor the way that Rudy Gobert doesn't help you. And so I was like, why don't they keep Gobert? Because his trade value is going to be lower you flip Donovan Mitchell, you rebuild around that, that's your way to move forward is essentially like a soft rebuild, right? But now th- that they got so much for Gobert, I think you absolutely have to trade Donovan Mitchell. The main reason why is he does have great value. And secondly, like I said earlier, he he is not good enough to be a number one option, in my opinion. Now, for starters, if you look at Donovan Mitchell's game, there are these immense strengths and these immense weaknesses It's very up and down type of player. First of all, over the course of the last three playoff runs, he's averaging 32 points, five rebounds and five assists on 46% from the field, 41% on threes, 10 attempts per game. That's a wild stat. So like a dead eye, high volume, three point shooter and 88% from the free throw line, 61% true shooting overall. So in terms of counting stats, offensive production, He's top tier. That's what you're getting from the best superstars around the league. But the gaping holes in his game, the giant weaknesses, massively massively undercut his impact. For starters, his shot selection at times can be super spotty. He's not a good game manager. He's not a guy that's going to have a good feel for what the five-man unit needs. You know, I talk about, you know, there's different archetypes of basketball players. I talk about this all the time. There's, like, a scoring archetype, and then there's, like, a playmaking game management archetype, and then there are, like, play finishers, right? Like, you know, Anthony Davis is an example of a play finisher, and then there are role players, right? You have defensive stoppers, you have interior rim protectors, you know, point guards that can just get you set up in your offense. Think like a DJ Augustine type of thing. There's all these different archetypes of basketball players and they are complementary to each other. You need all these boxes checked in various different ways. For instance, with my team that I put together to run in my men's leagues here in Tucson, like I know I'm a scorer. That's what I do. So I targeted a friend of mine named Josh who played college ball. He's a great game manager and a great playmaker. I make sure that he's on my team because our skill sets complement each other. It's important to kind of like have uh, have uh, all the boxes checked on a basketball team in order for uh, the entire function the entire team to function properly. Well, because Donovan Mitchell <clears throat> even though he is such a dynamic scorer he struggles with that game management piece and that was a, a big part of why the jazz struggled so much to reach their full potential in the playoffs you know in a, in a playoff series it's so important not just to have you know, the the X number of possessions where Donovan Mitchell shoots to go well. It's important for the totality of all the possessions that the Utah Jazz have in a seven game series to go well. That could be close to six, seven hundred possessions, right? So you need you need a game manager, someone that can make sure that On a possession-by-possession basis, everyone is staying in rhythm. Everyone's getting quality shots and things along those lines. Five assists per game isn't bad. It's not like Donovan Mitchell's incapable of making reads or driving into the paint and kicking out, but you almost get a little bit of a Westbrook vibe from him when you watch him in a playoff series where he never really sees a shot that he doesn't like, and he's very acutely aware of his rhythm and how he's feeling on the court, but he struggles to kind of get a feel for how everyone else is doing on the court. No shame in that. I have that weakness myself when I played. It just means that you need to put him alongside someone that can do that. That's why he's in number two, in my opinion. And then secondly, it's the defensive end of the floor. Uh, Rudy Gobert called him out for this after that last playoff run, right? Uh, Comparing him to Devin Booker. Um, But You know, at his size and athleticism, for him to be as bad of a perimeter defender as he is, is kind of inexcusable. And he's actually trending downwards in that department rather than trending upwards. He was a great defensive player in college. So as that has slipped, he's turned into kind of a give and a take kind of guy. He's a guard that can shoot you into a game and he can shoot you out of the game. And because he doesn't impact the game a ton around that, his impact is limited. So that's why the Devin Booker comp is so interesting. Devin Booker's a very similar type of player not in terms of their their literal impact on the game because one's a slashing guard and Devin Booker's more of like a bigger three-level scorer that relies heavily on on shot making, right? They're different, but they're they're similar in their approach to the game in the sense that they're both score first guards that, you know, don't have the ultimate physical tools to be the, you know, super duper star number one option. They both kind of fall back into that number 2 type of vibe, right? And if Devin Booker, who's a better player than Donovan Mitchell, who is a better defensive player than Donovan Mitchell, can't be a number one, what does that tell you about Donovan Mitchell? So from that standpoint, the way I look at it, like if you're the Utah Jazz, you have to get a number one. And Donovan Mitchell's not that guy, but it's also unrealistic to expect Donovan Mitchell to wait around and waste prime years of his career while you do a soft rebuild looking for the talent to make a run with him. You could take two or three years to find that guy. And Donovan Mitchell could get a wandering eye and want to go to some other team to play with one of his friends before that happens, especially since he's had some run-ins with Utah jazz fans over the years. So I, I'm a big believer in acknowledging the reality of the situation. We talked about this a lot with the Brooklyn nets, right? I, one of the reasons why I think they need to trade everybody is even if Katie and Kyrie decide to come back, they're just not good enough in this particular season because they don't have good enough role players around them. So like, acknowledge the reality of your situation. Donovan Mitchell's not a number one. He's probably not going to wait around long enough to for you to find a number one. Why don't you flip him? for as many assets as you can get. You already got this fantastic haul from the Rudy Gobert trade. You got three starting level players that started for a playoff team, a playoff team that took two games off of the number two seed, right? And you got all the draft picks. Not only can you flip those role players, like you can flip Patrick Beverly and Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt for additional assets. You could probably get maybe another first or two out of that. You can flip those guys and you can flip Donovan Mitchell for another haul of role players and picks and things along those lines. You can, in one offseason, completely fill your asset trove. Which could be the thing that you use to target the next disgruntled superstar, or to trade up in the draft for a number one overall pick if you have a specific prospect that you like, like a Victor Wembanyama, right? Like that, they have the ability because they hit such a home run with the Gobert trade to completely retool their asset trove like that. And so I think I think that they're headed in the right direction here. <clears throat> Uh, A couple of things. As far as Donovan Mitchell potential trade destinations, uh, my friend Tony Jones, who covers the Utah Jazz, mentioned the New New York Knicks as a team that's expected to put together an offer. Uh, I get it for the Knicks, and, I mean, they should, because why the hell not? And I'm not as high on R.J. Barrett as everyone else is, right? But, I mean, that's a race to mediocrity. A Donovan Mitchell team with Jalen Brunson and Julius Randle is going to win 45 games, be a five- or six-seed and lose to the Milwaukee Bucks or the Miami Heat in the first round. Like That's just what's going to happen with that team. Now, becomes much more interesting in Madison Square Garden. Also, I'm a big believer in projecting competence so that you can use that competence to draw the next star. You get Donovan Mitchell, you have a couple 47-win seasons, you have a couple first-round exits, but you project competence. You have a good head coach in there. You keep the head coach for a long time. Everybody looks happy and everything's going well. Then when you have cap space available, that's when you can actually pitch to a superstar like, hey, look at this successful operation we're running here. You should jump on with us. Donovan Mitchell's a perfect number two for you. Come and play. You know what I mean? Or maybe you can get, if if you don't have to spend too many assets in the Donovan Mitchell trade, you can accumulate assets around that and maybe you flip a Julius Randle and a Jalen Brunson for a superstar at some point in the future. So I like the move for the Knicks in terms of a franchise, a push forward for the franchise. But make no mistake, that team's not doing anything. Uh, the two the two teams that I had in mind, and I actually mentioned these right after the Jazz got eliminated from the eliminated from the playoffs. So you might remember. But like I talked about earlier about complementary pieces and just like trying to check all the boxes on a basketball team, there are two teams out there that have everything except for elite high end offensive creation. This is the Miami Heat and the Toronto Raptors. These are the two teams that I mentioned right after the Jazz got eliminated. Toronto is deep with athleticism and wings. They're extremely well-coached. They've got a freak young prospect in Scotty Barnes. They have everything in the world that you need in order to win a championship except for the top-tier type of scoring threat. Now, typically, I'd say Donovan Mitchell isn't good enough to be a number one option, but in this case, you could kind of like look at at it being a combination of a Pascal Siakam and Donovan Mitchell together kind of amounting to somebody that could give you a puncher's chance because of how much talent they have around them. Miami Heat, the exact same thing. Jimmy Butler is your number one there, so he doesn't need to be the number one, but it just gives them that extra offensive punch that they so desperately need because nobody other than Jimmy Butler can create their own shot there. So if the KD sweepstakes go south for those two teams – Donovan Mitchell's a really interesting backup plan. He'd be less expensive. I th- I think Toronto should give up Scotty Barnes for KD. Toronto fans think I'm crazy. Well, here's your alternative. If you don't want to get KD for Scotty Barnes, you can probably get uh Donovan Mitchell for a bunch of draft picks and like OG Ananobi. You know what I mean? So, like there's there's a version of this story where uh uh where you could backup plan yourself into a Donovan Mitchell. Now you're going at this with all of your length and athleticism but with Donovan Mitchell as another scoring punch to make things easier so that your defense can actually be enough for you to win. So those are the two teams that I'd keep an eye on. Miami and Toronto, if they don't get KD, look at them as backup plans for Donovan Mitchell. Phoenix is actually an interesting example of a team that could do that as well. Um, moving on to Kyrie. So we had uh, David McMenamin from ESPN, he reported, uh, I believe, on GetUp uh, or NBA Today. Um, it was either yesterday or the day before. He said that uh, now the Lakers are waiting to see if the Nets decide to bring KD and Kyrie back. Then we get this report from the New York Post, and I'm going to read this. Quote, How did we get it? This is from from a source. How did we get into this situation and trade when he opted in? The source asked, asked rhetorically. Here's the situation. He opted in, which means he had and has every intention of playing with the Brooklyn Nets. KD decides he wants to out, And now everybody is talking about trading Kyrie, right? Kyrie has not asked for a trade. Now, if the Nets don't want him, that's something totally different. Kyrie has not said he wants a trade. He opted in. So where did the trade conversations come from? Is it because KD requested a trade and now everyone's like, let's trade K? Kyrie opted in. Now, I tweeted out when I saw that yesterday. I was like, how stupid do they think we are? (laughs) Because, I mean, like, literally... We know the friends, the, the Nets front office doesn't want Kyrie. If they wanted Kyrie, they would have offered him a dope extension to make everything fit with K- KD so that they can move on to the future. The Nets purposefully put their foot down there, right? Kyrie, his camp nonstop leaked for weeks that he wanted to go to LA. Then Kyrie, out in public, gets shouted at by a fan saying, hey, when are you coming to the Lakers? And he said, soon. Like, d- how dumb do you think we are, man? You, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I agree that Kyrie probably, in a perfect world, would have liked to have re-signed with the Nets and stayed in Brooklyn with KD. But the reality of the situation is the tension and the fracture and the uh, the awkwardness there is too much to go back. There's an outside chance that they try that. There's an outside chance that Brooklyn goes, Hey, let's all just come back and do this. I'm not saying that's off the table, but it would be a weird toxic vibe. All it takes is a three, four game losing streak or Kyrie missing some time again for Brooklyn to have issues. They could be right back in the situation at the trade deadline, which is probably not what they want to do. Right? So like, I still think that the that, that this is trending towards everybody getting traded. It's just funny to see, and this is classic leverage plays, right? Like, we might bring them to camp. No, you won't. You don't want toxicity around the team when you start a new season. It's like, well, you know, Kyrie wants to stay in the, with the Nets. No, he doesn't. He wants to go to the Lakers. That's ridiculous. We've literally heard that out of his literal mouth, okay? So everyone, and then KD literally went to Josiah and directly requested a trade. That that's, that's just been known to be true. So we don't have to lie to each other here about what's happening. This is all a leverage play. There's one thing, and one thing only, that can put Brooklyn's train back on the tracks, and that's Kevin Durant. If Kevin Durant comes out, and straight up, I don't know, Goes straight to Woj and says it or comes straight out and says it himself and goes, Hey, I changed my mind. I don't want to be traded. I'm going to, at least not right now. I'm going to come back and play this season with the Nets. Kyrie's coming with me. We're going to make this thing work. If KD says that, then it will happen because then you can count on KD and Kyrie to go into camp motivated and taking it seriously. Cause you know, it's their idea. You know what I mean? But if Sean Marks forces them to come back to camp, there's so much more risk that can come from that. So everything is hurtling towards these guys getting traded. The one thing that could pull them back onto the tracks is KD coming out and saying, I would rather stay. Okay, so like unless we hear that specifically, all of this is just noise in a negotiation.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue, while you prep your meats, That grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy
1: terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping. When you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutriful.com, spelled N U T R A F O L, dot com, promo code hoops, that's H O O P S. That's Nutriful.com, promo code hoops. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Angie's cost guides that will tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. and the app is free and easy to use. Get started at angie.com. That's com, or download the app today. All right, so Adam Silver releases a quote uh, in like his little State of the Union thing that he did yesterday, basically saying that he doesn't like the league doesn't like to see trade requests like what happened with Kevin Durant. And he specifically said that it's something that they're going to have to deal with in the next collective bargaining agreement. Now, this is a super, super complicated topic, right? Because there's a huge difference between what's morally correct and what's best for the league. Now, when I say best for the league, that's not just best for the owners because they're on a 50-50 revenue split. So whatever's best for the league is equally beneficial to the players as it is to the owners. That's just mathematically how the contract works. But there's a big difference between what's best for the league and what's actually morally fair. Because every time I see this kind of thing, I am, I feel almost obligated to point out the moral conundrum. Like Adam Silver saying, and I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but basically what he says is like, these franchises offer a great deal of security to the players financially through the guarantee that's in the contract. And all they ask is for them to fulfill the contract. But we've literally seen so many times throughout NBA history, a player be like, okay, franchise, I will do this for five years. Sign on the dotted line. Oh, Blake Griffin's with the Detroit Pistons now. Like we've just seen that happen so many times over the years. The franchises do not feel that loyalty to the players. And so it's not fair to expect the players to demonstrate that same loyalty to the franchises. So that's the moral reality of the situation. But the 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 what's best for the league is entirely different. Because like I talked about with Colin Coward after the um after the NBA finals, there's just there's just something to be said about organic fan bases. You know, the NBA has had rating issues over the years. This year things trended back in the right direction. I tend to think that has a lot more to do with the talent that's in the league. The TV product of the NBA right now is excellent. It has some room for improvement, but it's excellent. So I think that's why fans are driving back towards the NBA. But make no mistake, there's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Golden State Warriors fan base is so healthy. Colin told you guys himself, the average NBA team makes about $200 million a year in revenue. The Warriors make like $700 million. Why do you think that is? It's not just because rich people are Warriors fans. It's because they have so many of them. And and, and a big part of that is from the beginning of this era when Steph was drafted, through Clay's drafting, through Draymond's drafting, through them going on that interesting playoff run in 2013 to almost beat the spurs to them losing in 7 games to the clippers in 2014 to the the title in 2015 to and steph winning an mvp to the near miss the low of 2016 having this amazing season that ends in you lose it to then you signing kevin durant winning two in a row to You know, Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson getting injured and you losing in the finals to the disaster that was the 2020 season and you missed the playoffs to the 2021 season and you missed the playoffs. You guys get the point here. There's all of these highs and lows. And then it culminates in them winning a title in 2022 with Steph Clay and Draymond and Steve Kerr and Bob Myers and Joe Laka. That's the same core that was there in 2015. You know, and and before that, just Steve Kerr, right? So it was different. So the point is, is like the fan base is freakishly loyal and ravenous and loud and easy to monetize because of the loyalty that was bred from the franchise over the course of that decade with the franchise. So the reality is, is Brooklyn could not get people to buy tickets. Brooklyn's TV ratings were some of the worst in the league. Locally. So, what that tells us, despite having Kyrie Irving, who's one of the most fun players to watch in NBA history, and Kevin Durant, who's arguably a top 10 player of all time. So, the point there is the lesson to learn there is that the health of the league directly leads to money. And the health of the league is largely tied to ravenous, loyal local fan bases. You're going to see this with Milwaukee over the years if Giannis stays. They will become a very monetizable fan base because they will have this long extended stretch of continuity with a core group of players that the fans are irrevocably attached to. That's always going to be an important part of this. Now, again, there's... As soon as you, if if the league does things and negotiates for things to try to force players to stay, not necessarily force, but heavily incentivize players to stay, they do dramatically shift the morality, right? Because if players are incentivized to stay, but then teams can still trade them all day long, it's not necessarily fair. But at the end of the day, it's just the reality of the way that the system works and they don't i don't think the players necessarily see the the pain of the finances in the immediate future because of the tv contract right but like what if i told like what if you were able to tell the fans like hey by virtue of doing this if you are forced or heavily incentivized to stay with the team that drafted you our next tv deal will be x dollars bigger you know, Or maybe not that one, but the one after, because it takes sometimes, like with the Warriors, it takes a half decade, a decade to breed that fan base. But at, su- at a certain point, the league needs to understand, the players need to understand that there's a trade-off there, and they need to f- decide how much they want to fight for. Because if you make the league into a mercenary league, where teams are constantly in flux, and players are constantly teaming up with different guys every couple of years and moving all over the country, you will only breed fans... That are fans of the league. And that typically is going to be a more intense basketball fan. You will lose casual fans that are in these local uh, areas. Like if if the Phoenix Suns had some variation of Devin Booker, Mikhail Bridges, and DeAndre Ayton for the next decade, then Phoenix would become a ravenous fan base. But if after this year they flip the whole thing over and it's Kevin Durant and Devin Booker and no one else, it's going to be very different. you know. And, and that's just one example. But again, you have to decide. Do you want a mercenaries league where you make less money in the long run or do you want a league that has a more traditional structure that breeds strong local fan bases and you guys all make more money in the long run? And it's a tough decision and I don't know what the answer there is and only the players know and it's up to them to figure out. They got to decide what they think is worth fighting for. All right, let's move on to Steph and LeBron. So Bobby Marks um, said that he would have Steph second behind MJ all time. Now you guys have heard me talk about this stuff before. I don't really, uh, I'm not changing your minds. Like that, that's the reality of the situation. Like uh, uh, you warriors fans out there. And I know a lot of you listen to the show. Like Steph's your guy, man. I just broke that down for you for a decade. For better or worse, he's been your guy and he's come through for you so many times. So like, I understand your loyalty to him and I totally get it. It's literally the same way that I feel about LeBron. I grew up watching him. He came through as a, as I was a fan of his, he came through so many times that like, I just have this faith in what he can do on the basketball court. So it's difficult for people to convince me that a Kevin Durant or a Steph is better than him. So I get that. And I'm not trying to convince you guys. I'm just going to give you my impression of the situation. Now, Steph, we're going to do a uh, an in-depth player ranking as we get into the further into the summer, as we get kind of out of some of this free agency stuff and out of this trade stuff, and actually in the real dog days of NBA summer, which is like August, we're going to spend a lot of time on lists. So I will get deeper into this, but I think Steph is probably the fifth or sixth best player of all time. Uh, And and you guys remember, I rank mine different. I keep a list of bigs, and then I keep a list of perimeter players. But in that list of perimeter players, I I have LeBron, I have MJ, I've got uh, Magic Johnson, I've got Kobe, and then it's like Steph and Larry Bird are kind of competing for that fifth spot there. Steph is my second favorite player of this era. I have the utmost respect for Steph. But make no mistake, guys. There's a reason why LeBron is in the conversation with MJ. I don't think he's ahead of MJ, but there's a reason why he's in that conversation. His resume is completely insane. I I, I need to read this to you guys just so you can get a feel for what I'm talking about. So obviously, Steph has matched LeBron in titles. LeBron has four titles. Steph has four titles. That's where the comparisons end. Conference titles. LeBron has 10. Steph has six. MVPs, LeBron has four, Steph has two. Finals MVPs, LeBron has four, Steph has one. Two if you count 2015, which I count, so four to two. All-star appearances, LeBron 18, Steph eight. First-team All-NBA, this is wild. LeBron 13 times media members thought he was a top-five player in the NBA, Steph four. All-defense selections, LeBron six, Steph zero. LeBron has 17,000 more points than Steph, 6,000 more rebounds, and 5,000 more assists. That's basically one Giannis career. So if Steph th- went to have Giannis's career from right now, Giannis's total career to this point, he would just get to where LeBron is, and he'd still be about 3,000 points behind. Like, that's how ridiculous LeBron's resume is. That's why he's in the conversation with MJ. Again, I wouldn't put him ahead, but that's why he's there. And so, like, I'm not going to convince you guys. I'm just going to say, like, you know when the LeBron fan says he's ahead of MJ and how ridiculous it sounds because MJ won six titles in eight tries with Scottie Pippen as his best teammate? When he was miles better than anybody else in the league, it was blasphemy to even mention another person's name in his breath. That's how good MJ was. That's how ridiculous LeBron fans sound when they say LeBron was ahead of MJ. That's how ridiculous Steph fans sound when they say Steph is ahead of LeBron. And, and that that's all I'm saying. Like, It's okay for Steph to be the sixth best perimeter player of all time. That's ridiculous. The dude played, what, three years of college basketball. The dude had horrible ankle injuries that disrupted the beginning of his career. He's the only guy on the list who's as small as he is. It's ridiculous. Sorry about that. It's ridiculous that he's had the career that he's had with what he's been given. He has massively outperformed anything you could have ever hoped or expected from him. And he still is playing basketball, but let's not get crazy. That's all we're saying here. And then even if we look at the absolute peak, so I think Steph's absolute peak was this season. I thought he was an unbelievable defensive player this season. And in terms of you actually factor in the way defenses guard him compared to 2016 and 2015, when they still didn't really know how, and for him to be as efficient as he was, to have that playoff run that he just had, with Andrew freaking Wiggins as his best player, I was arguing with some people up in uh, uh, up in Vegas um about Steph, you know, and I, I couldn't, i I became the Steph defender. I was, I was uh, arguing with a buddy of mine, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm not sure Steph has ever really carried." I'm like, "Dude, he just won a title with Andrew Wiggins as his best teammate." Like, how is that not carrying? You know what I mean? But that's, that, that to me is what encapsulates Steph's absolute peak season. This 2022 season was the best version of Steph that I saw in terms of control of the game, scoring efficiently in the playoffs, defending, being the chess master, deciphering defenses, everything that he did to drag that team to the trophy, to me was the peak of Steph. That said, I think LeBron had four seasons that were better. I think in 2013, when he was the best defensive player in basketball, and uh, like a like a, a ridiculously efficient, you know, I think his true shooting percentages was in the 60s, and he was averaging 30 points in 2013 to get the 66 wins and to win the title the way he did that year. 2016, every bit as impactful defensively as he was in two thir- 2013, but a better offensive player than he was. 2018, the best peak offensive version of LeBron. Not a very good, not a great defensive player that season, but the peak offensive version of LeBron, that was the best offensive player I ever saw. And then 2020, arguably, is his best season because he was an all defense level defender. He didn't get voted that year, but he was an all defense level defender. And he was unbelievable in the playoff run, shot 59% in the, pl- in the finals, averaging 30 to win finals MVP and never he was even threatened on his way to the title. Like LeBron, I, I, I'm a huge Steph fan, guys. You guys know that. And again, I understand I'm not going to change your mind, but to me, this is not close. Like Steph is fighting with Larry Bird for fifth. He's not fighting with LeBron for second. That's just, we're jumping the gun there. I read out the numbers for you. It's just, it's just, it's just too much. Uh, one last thing before we get out of here so um <laughs> this one I don't respond to trolls on Twitter almost ever um just because uh, there's hundreds of them they're awful people what's the point uh but I had one uh that uh went kind of viral the other day on on Monday um not viral but kind of made some rounds on Twitter that was kind of false about me, and so I quote tweeted it and it basically what it was was uh my uh somebody took the stats from my worst college season and put them out and, uh, and people were having their taking their shots and taking their victory laps. You know how that goes. Um, but I actually thought it was a really interesting chance to teach a valuable basketball lesson. And it turned, it turned into a bigger thing because after I tweeted out my actual basketball resume, uh, Kevin Durant responded under- underneath it, uh, kind of having my back, but in like his own way, kind of making fun of people for giving him crap for defending himself to trolls, uh, which is a whole other thing. And I get it. I've never had an issue with KD complaining or bat- batting back at trolls. The way I look at it is KD is uh, is completely authentic. KD is always going to be exactly what he wants to be. He doesn't care what you want him to be. He's going to just put real Kevin out there in the public for the whole world to see. And I've always admired that about him. And he's the kind of guy that gets irritated with trolls. And so he talks to trolls often. But I did it this one time. And he took that as an opportunity to kind of uh, piggyback off that. But I wanted to uh, talk about the basketball for a second because this is a very, very valuable basketball lesson. So a couple things. Uh, this And for those of you who haven't heard, I'm going to kind of go through my college basketball resume here a little bit. So uh, in college, I was just an athlete. I, I was six with a 6'10", wingspan. I could jump out of the gym. I could shoot a little bit, but I couldn't dribble. And I certainly didn't know the game very well. I was a very late bloomer. My parents raised me on football and baseball, so I didn't even really pick up a basketball until I was about 15 years old. Even then, I just shot around on a hoop in my backyard. I got cut from JV as a sophomore. I made JV as a junior, but I didn't play. Then I made varsity as a senior, but I didn't play. So like, I, 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 just was, I wasn't a high school player. Then I went two years of college where I just was playing pickup all the time, and I got to the point where I was functional enough. I walked into an open gym at a junior college destroyed everybody but again it was a local junior college they offered me a scholarship that third year of college is when i started playing college ball but i was super super raw like had like a 40 inch vertical 610 wingspan tall but i i didn't know the game i didn't know how to play i could shoot when i was i was streaky i could shoot when i was hot but that was it but like what's interesting is my career, my college career follows a descending pattern statistically. But what's funny is the last season, my worst statistical season was actually my best. There was when I was my best version of myself as a player. I say all this to say this. Guys, I I did play in college, but that has nothing to do with this. Like what we're doing here. I have never, ever tried to be like, listen to me. I played in college. Like, no, that doesn't matter. Why, why would you li- Why go listen to JJ Reddick? Then he played in the NBA. What this is, what we're doing here is I love the game of basketball so much that I pour my heart and soul into it every day. And this is what allows me to do this, to watch as much film as I do, to care about it as much as I do, and to try to express that to you guys. Does the fact that I play in college, does it help? Sure, yeah, it helps with some perspective on certain things. But there are a lot of people out there. I met Kevin O'Connor in Vegas, someone I've been wanting to meet for a long time. Kevin O'Connor didn't play college basketball. He, he, that dude is an incredible NBA writer and podcaster. He's super smart. And he knows his stuff. He doesn't need to have played in college to be able to tell you that. So when I talk about these kinds of things, they're just to kind of offer experience and knowledge. It's never to be like, look at me. I'm better than you guys. I played in college. I don't care. No one's paying me a penny to play basketball now. It's pointless. But my college basketball journey is an interesting lesson in the way that situation can impact a basketball player. My first season in college, the one I just told you guys about, I averaged 16 points and 10 rebounds per game. I had a career-high 31 in that season. I uh, shot okay from three. I think I shot like 37% from three on high volume. It was like seven attempts per game. Everything was great. Here's the issue. The team was freaking terrible. I think we only won five games. And JUCO in general is very unorganized basketball. It's uh, Everyone's got an agenda. The teams are not super well coached, typically. It's a different type of basketball, Right. So then from there, I transferred to a different junior college in Utah, okay? This one was a a completely different season. I averaged about, uh, I think, 11 points per game. I was third in my conference in rebounding, and I made an all-conference team. But literally, I made an all-conference team despite my numbers going down. Why is that? Because we won more. We won 14 games that season, and i had big scoring games in games that we won and that was, and the coaches are who voted for the all-conference team. So that's what got people saw me as a winning player that year. In a way, they didn't the first season. You guys kind of get the theme here, right? My third season, I transferred to Arizona Christian University. They had just gone on a national title, a, a run in the national tournament, and made it to the second round. They were. Um, Uh, The player at my position at small forward was an all-conference player the previous year, and I took his spot and moved him to the bench. That's how deep we were with talent. I had two All-American guards. My role completely changed. My coach literally sat me down in the office and was like, we do not need you to shoot. I just need you to guard the other team's best player every single night and just be in the right spots, run the plays correctly, and that'll be fine and my numbers tanked. I averaged like 5 points per game that I really really struggled to shoot at one point in the beginning of the season. This is crazy. I missed 22 consecutive three-point shots over the course of a couple of weeks. It was it was bad. The the role shift going from being all-conference guy who had the ball in his hands a lot to basically playing Trevor Ariza in the corner, that shift Completely screwed with my head, and it screwed with my rhythm. Most of my shots were either off the dribble or off of jab step, like face up stuff in previous seasons. All of a sudden, it was only catch and shoot reps, and I just, I just, I really struggled with that. I over the course of the season, I got better. In conference play, I shot over thirty percent from three, but like it wasn't great. I just, it, it, that whole sequence really, really exposed to me how I needed to improve in other areas of the game. That same season, I learned how to be a better defensive player. I was not a good defensive player in my two years in junior college i was a great defensive player at arizona christian university i learned the importance of of buying into the team concept and and practicing hard every day because you know if you don't practice hard you're going to lose your spot i learned how to uh run uh high and uh like uh highly complicated defensive schemes i used synergy to watch a ton of film and to learn how to appropriately uh, like like i would i would I would literally watch hours of film on the other team's best player before the game to learn which way they like to drive, what they would do when they would drive that way. and and I, I became in a lot of ways a professional with the way I approached the game that year because I had to scratch and claw for my role on the team. as opposed to being in Juco where it was like, here's the keys to the offense, do whatever the hell you want. It's entirely different. And that, that's why I think it's important to d- express those things to, to, to you guys. Is like when you see stats, when you see numbers, when you see things like that, they're always different. I was actually a better shooter that third season than I was the first season when I shot 37% on seven attempts or whatever. The difference was, is I was playing on a bad basketball team in loosely organized junior college basketball versus real NAIA basketball. That's extremely well coached and everyone's in the right spots. Defenses are always in help. The slashing opportunities aren't there that you're used to. It was just a completely different ball game. And I grew a lot of ways as a basketball player that year. And we won a shit ton of games. We won 13 games in a row to start the season. We beat a Division One team on their home floor, even though we were NAIA. We, uh, at one point, reached top five ranking in the NAIA, and we made it to the national tournament. So it was a monstrously successful season. That I played a defensive role and I shot like shit. Like that's that's literally all it was. But some kid, who the hell know who who's who it? Who the hell knows who it was? Took a screenshot of just my shooting percentages from that year, which were awful, and put them out there. And everyone was running off with them. And I don't care. You can take your victory laps. I've never stood on who I was as a college basketball player. That's not who I am. I'm Jason Timpf, the basketball analyst, and I love the game. And I hope that you guys pick that up from me. But I, I have never cared about that. I just thought it was a cool opportunity for me to explain to you guys the way that role can change a a player's performance and confidence, and then also the way that winning basketball, it's harder to produce statistically in a winning situation than it is in a losing situation, which is something that we should keep in mind when we're evaluating NBA players and things along those lines. As Draymond says, stand on that. I will stand on whatever the hell people think of my college resume. It is what it is. I'm standing on it. I I hope that lesson um, uh, uh, can help you guys kind of get a better idea of what that kind of experience is like. All right. That is all I have for today. I sincerely appreciate your guys' support as always. Like I said, I will be taking all of my equipment with me when I go on vacation, and who knows? Maybe we'll have something in the next couple of days. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys can see show announcements and things along those lines, and I'll see you guys in a couple of days.
0: The Volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere.